Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Friends, today our reading comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew. While it appears first in our New Testament, Matthew was not written first. Most scholars think that Matthew was written after the Gospel of Mark, since about 90% of Mark's Gospel is found in Matthew's Gospel. That would mean that Matthew was composed somewhere between 80 and 90 CE. Matthew's Gospel is unique. It is often called the Teacher's Gospel because it focuses so heavily on the teaching ministry of Jesus and strongly emphasizes the need for faith leaders to understand the Word and to teach it to others. Indeed, scholar William Barclay wrote of Matthew, when we turn to Matthew, he says, we turn to the book which may well be called the most important single document of the Christian faith, for in it we have the fullest and the most systematic account of the life and teachings of Jesus. Let us turn now and hear a relevant and meaningful word of instruction from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 9 verses 9 through 19. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. So with the new sermon series comes a new meditative song that we're going to sing together uh, before every sermon this series. So we're going to teach it to you this morning. just for us, just dogma collecting dust, it's true what we do with the news Jesus brought must inspire our neighbor's trust. Practicing grace and truth Swimming against the tide We will follow you Sing that once more Swimming against the tide 
Practicing grace and truth Swimming against the tide We will follow you If you knew everything about the future, what would you do different today? There's a question that marketing expert Faith Popcorn asks and has been asking for decades. Popcorn is an expert in cultural and consumer trends, often referred to as the Nostradamus of marketing. As a future caster, she's identified these sweeping movements in business and politics and human uh, behavior that predict how Americans will think, what they will value, and ultimately what they will buy. And so she advises uh, dozens and dozens of CEOs of some of the largest corporations, not only in America, but around the world. And I have been following Popcorn's work for decades when, um, when she first in the mid-1990s predicted the explosive growth of home businesses, home shopping, home delivery, home theater systems, home schooling, TV shows about home improvement. This was years before the advent of Amazon and Netflix, HGTV and DoorDash. In fact, I remember when she predicted that one day, instead of driving over to the local Blockbuster and renting a movie. You remember those days? Man, I hope they have Footloose, right? <laughs> oh, man. Instead of driving to Blockbuster to rent your movie, Popcorn said there'll be a day when you just, just download the movie right to your TV. And I said, yeah, right, Faith Popcorn, right? <laughs> She claims a 95% accuracy rate in seeing what lies ahead. Her work has always informed me as a pastor because I think a lot about the church, about where the church is going, what the, the future of the church looks like. If we knew everything about the future of the church, what would we do differently today? How would we communicate our message? How would we shape and innovate our ministries and programs? How would we use our resources to meet new people and to meet their human needs? What spiritual needs would we seek to meet? Well, Popcorn has identified 17 cultural trends that will reveal, as she says, the future. And in this new series, Swimming Against the Tide, we will be looking at seven of these trends through the lens of the Christian faith. We'll be asking how are these trends for better and for worse, shaping our lives and our world right now? And how can we live in ways that are Christ-centered and to seek life-giving alternatives to these trends that Faith Popcorn has identified? And today, I want to begin by exploring one of these trends that Popcorn has identified called clanning. Clanning is about our, our need to belong. Clanning is about belonging to a group that that uh, re represents common feelings and values and beliefs, uh, ideals, where our own belief systems are validated and normalized. A few of us here would doubt that clanning is this universal human phenomenon. In fact, we've been clanning for about 200,000 years. It's how our species 
survived. Without a clan, we would get eaten, or we'd go hungry, or we might die from sickness or injury. There is strength and security in numbers. Teamwork makes the dream work, as we say. And today, not much really has changed, except that there's a whole lot more clans. Today, we look for our people. That's how we go through the world. We look for our people. Uh, Sigma Chi, Kappa Kappa Gamma, you Broncos fan, a Christian, are you American, conservative, progressive, Republican, Democrat, Ford Chevy, Mac PC, Fox CNN, Coke Pepsi, you ski or do you ride? You West Coast guy or East Coast guy? Personally, I'm a Ford-driving, Mac-using, dog-loving, Diet Coke-drinking skier. <laughs> That's my tribe. Our clans are even more narrowly defined these days than they ever were. Um, we're not just looking for one type of person or one group. We're looking for a very unique kind of person that represents a lot of groups. We go through this world looking for the Sigma Chi-pledging, Bronco-cheering, Presbyterian church-attending, chai-tea-drinking, moderate, unaffiliated voter who gets his news on Facebook. They're also members of the local shooting range. And they raise backyard chickens, specifically the Plymouth Rock kind. <laughs> That's a pretty small clan, but if you can find it, man, you have found your people. But isn't that close to the truth these days? We seek out, we sort out these highly specific people who think like us, act like us, believe like us. That's how we feel safe. That's how we feel affirmed, valued. It's how we find our identity often in this world, our sense of belongingness, as we say. And this kind of clanning, it can save lives. I mean, this is a clan right here. Down the hallway, every, every day of the week at noon in this sanction, this building, people gather for Alcoholics Anonymous, a life-saving clan. Youth groups, scouting groups, choirs, um, support groups for grief, for cancer, for abuse. These clans are literally saving our lives. But when our clans begin to weed out those whose thoughts and attitudes, opinions, and interests, and values, and beliefs are contrary to our own, something within us begins to atrophy and die. When our clanning makes hard distinctions between us and them, that's when our, our families, our communities, our churches, our school boards, our communities, our, our, our nation, um, this is how things become so segmented and sorted, so polarized, that we begin to define our relationships by the level of hostility and mistrust. And this is how we begin to lose our commitment to the common good, our sense of, our sense of belonging to people who are much bigger than us. It's how we become tribalistic, exclusivist, extremist, and that's how communities die. It's how compassion dies. It's how the very Spirit of God within us dies. 
And we can't strip this human need for planning from our human nature, but we can begin to follow Jesus, the lead of Jesus, who gave us a better example, a new strategy for how we ought to plan in this world. And it was a very simple yet highly controversial strategy in the first century world. The strategy was simple. Um, Hang out with tax collectors and sinners. That was it. Jesus expanded the traditional clans of his day to include those who by all outward appearances and who for many social, political, and even philosophical religious reasons were very unlike him and his Jewish people. In the Gospels, these people are often called tax collectors and sinners. It's a common phrase in the Gospels. It, it meant something like that one group of schmucks and then all the other good-for-nothings of the neighborhood. Tax collectors and sinners. And tax collectors were the schmuckiest of the schmucks. And we meet one in today's text that you heard read from Reverend Jerry. This tax collector, his name is Matthew. And he's more, he's more crooked than Bernie Madoff. He's more intimidating than Tony Soprano. In other words, he is like a first century mobster. He is a Jew who works for the Roman Empire. In other words, he's one of us, but he's on the enemy's payroll, which makes him a traitor. As a tax collector, Matthew could find you on the street at any moment and tax you for everything in your possession. He could tax you for, if you're, car- if you're pulling a cart, he could tax you for each wheel on your cart. He could tax you for the animal that pulled your cart. He would tax you for all the merchandise on your cart. And then at the end of the month, he would send off those taxes to the occupying Roman army. He would take a cut off the top first, which meant that the higher he taxed, the harder he taxed you, the wealthier he got, and the more suffering you endured. And so for that, he is hated, despised. One day, Jesus sees him on the street, Matthew sitting at his tax-collecting desk, and Jesus says to him, come and follow me. And it says that Matthew got up and followed him. We don't know why he got up and followed Jesus. It doesn't say. We don't know if there is more to the story, if he had some dramatic experience of conversion right there at his desk, or if he just got up because he was curious. But he gets up and he, he follows Jesus, and Jesus says, we're going to your house for dinner. And there they have a dinner party. Matthew invites all of his friends Maybe it, was a, maybe it was a celebration party, like a coming out party, like a, I'm giving up my old tax collecting miserable life and I'm a new person now. We don't know. What we do know is that all of his friends show up. And the only friends that Matthew has are tax collectors. The house is filled with tax collectors. It's like a tax collector convention. But it says also some sinners were there. We don't know exactly what is meant by sinners, but they say misery loves company. And so tax collectors probably had a lot of really miserable company. 
Sinners is just a label for the big bucket of every other miserable soul in the community. Probably included prostitutes, money changers, loan sharks, a handful of televangelists. (laughs) You know, people whose ways are a little shady, whose money is a little dirty. And when the Pharisees go looking for Jesus, they find they find him in Matthew's house, partying, laughing, eating, talking. Jesus and the schmucks. But it's, it's worse than that. For the Pharisees, it's more like Jesus and the neo-Nazis. It's more like Jesus and the Proud Boys. It's like Jesus and Putin's acolytes. It's like Jesus and the devil. At that dinner with schmucks, Jesus has scandalized his own clan. He crossed every boundary, crossed the line that has been clearly drawn in the sand for generations. He crossed his own people. And they said, he crossed God. The writer Donald Miller, he told a story about a question that one of his teachers asked his elementary school class one day. And this lesson was on values clarification. And the question was this. If there was a lifeboat adrift at sea, and in the lifeboat were a male lawyer, (laughs) you see where this is going, (laughs) a female doctor, a disabled child, a stay-at-home mom, and a garbage man. And one person had to be thrown overboard to prevent the lifeboat from sinking. Which person would you choose? And Miller says that he can't quite remember for sure, but he thinks his class decided to throw the lawyer out of the boat. I'm, I'm, so, I'm just reporting the story. <laughs> he says, I, I do remember that the class did not hesitate in deciding who had value and who didn't. Why is it that human beings so often function as though there's only so much room in the boat? Do we really believe that there's not enough room in the boat for everyone? That at the end of the day, someone has to be tossed overboard. And the Pharisees had worked so hard to keep tax collectors and sinners out of their boat. And here's Jesus pulling them aboard one by one. Why? When the Pharisees complained, Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Jesus never forsook his own clan. He was a faithful Jew who loved his own people to the very end. But his mission was to build a bigger clan by healing sick people. He began his ministry by calling 12 kind of sketchy suspects to be his disciples. They weren't all well. Then he sought out a handful of others who joined him, and some of those we know weren't well. Then he went to the sinners and the tax collectors. This is crazy, I know, but it turns out that if you want to make sick people well, you actually have to seek out and hang out with sick people. I don't know. I mean, 
Where did he come up with this idea? If you want to redeem the world, you actually have to seek out those whom the world has deemed irredeemable. If you want to win over the enemy, the adversary, you have to befriend him. And so at every turn, what Jesus does is he builds a bigger table. And he goes out and he gathers a few more sick people. And he brings them to the table. And then he builds a bigger table. And he goes out and does it again and again. And Jesus never once checks religious credentials first. He never stands at the door and asks for proof of vaccination from all the world's ills. All he does is expand the clan by building a bigger table and making people well. All because they just need a doctor. All because that was his mission. And it's not entirely the fault of the Pharisees because they just didn't understand this. They, they loved their clan so much. They were just simply willing to do anything to protect it. To keep out the threats, the imposters, the predators. But you know what they say about just finding one rat in the house? And Jesus was in a house full of them. And some Christians love to blame Pharisees for everything, labeling them as exclusivists, uptight legalists. But we all wonder, where are the boundaries then? Is engagement with the enemy endorsement? Is compassion compromise? Is genuine respect resignation? But if Christ is at the center, there are no boundaries that should separate us from anyone. The Pharisees are furious because they don't understand this truth. And so in response, Jesus says to them, go and learn what the scriptures mean. When they say, instead of offering sacrifices, I want you to be merciful to others. And I love that Jesus says, go and learn it because it has to be learned. It's not our human nature. For us, our nature is to understand that planning must have rules and expectations and consequences and boundaries and obligations to each other. But for Jesus, planning means that human compassion eclipses religious compulsion. It means love transcends the law. It means mercy surpasses your sacrifice. So what about your clan? How big is your table? Are you building a bigger table and gathering more people? Because the length and width of your table will determine the breadth and the depth of your compassion. Surely, after Pope Francis entered office, he gave this message that shocked not only Catholics but Christians around the world because he said, you know, to be a Christian in the modern world, he said, is to meet all people, whether they are Christians or not, even atheists, at the place of doing good works. And he spoke of the need to meet each other on our common ground. And he said, the commandment for everyone to do good is a beautiful path towards peace. He said, if we each doing our own part 
do good to others, if we meet there doing good, and if we go slowly and gently, little by little, we will create a culture of encounter. A culture of encounter. It's this evocative image for Christians. That's the kind of planning that Jesus calls us to do. It's what Jesus created in every community he ever entered. He created a culture of encounter. To meet others regardless of who they are or what they believe or where they've been or what they've done. To find in them what matters most to them. To find in them the good in them, as hard as that can be. To find in them what they truly hunger for and to befriend that part of them. It is a culture of encounter. Someone told me this week about this encounter he had recently with a neighbor. He's an openly gay man, which means there are some spaces in this world where he doesn't always feel safe in every personal encounter. And his neighbor is one who, at least by outward appearances, didn't feel very safe to him, if for no other reason than the Confederate flag that flies in his front yard. And one day, this neighbor was outside, sitting on his driveway, with his face in his hands, crying. My friend was walking on the sidewalk, and he stopped and he addressed this neighbor by name, and then asked him, why are you crying? And the neighbor said, my sister was just diagnosed with cancer. And my friend paused for a moment, and then he said, my sister has cancer too. And then he sat down on the driveway, and they cried. Our takeaways for today, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. The length and width of our table will determine the breadth and depth of our compassion. And if we meet there doing good and we go slowly, gently, little by little, we will create a culture of encounter. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.